This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. I'm joined in the Dodge 112 studios today by Allison Manuel, who has helped produce this episode of Tempest Tossed. We've called this episode Doubly Displaced in the Bronx. Allison, can you say a few words why? We wanted to tell the story of immigrant communities who were displaced from their home countries and came to the Bronx to make home and pulled the borough back from near destruction um, in the 1970s due to neglect and abandonment from uh, city government and from financial institutions. And then these communities really rebuilt the borough um, and made it what it is today Um, but immigrant communities, again, are fighting for their right to remain in their homes, this time coming in the crosshairs of gentrification. What have the tenant groups been fighting for? They have been fighting for a comprehensive set of reforms um, called uh, universal rent control to really close a lot of the loopholes that have existed for far too long in New York state law that landlords have exploited to Um, harass tenants out of their homes. But high eviction rates still remain. So it's interesting. We we think of New York as an immigrant-friendly city. It's called the sanctuary city. And yet there are practices in the city that, in fact, uh, are forcing immigrants from their homes. Yeah. And it's um, very direct uh, attacks of landlords using immigration status to harass tenants, whether undocumented or not, um, with threats of calling immigration enforcement. Or in other cases, it's using rent hikes or um, verbal and physical abuse or just neglect of repairs to the point where tenants feel they have absolutely no other choice but to leave. And then once they've left, of course, landlords try to fill those spaces with much higher paying rent tenants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a question for New York City and cities like it across the country. And the, no matter what the, the, the city's uh, policies are on not reporting immigrant status or cooperating with ICE, it's the role of the private sector here, really, I guess under laws that permit this, that allow them to manipulate uh, practices uh, that, in fact, displace immigrants again. Mm-hmm. So to help us tell the story, we're first going to hear from Alexis Francisco, who is an organizer with the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition, an activist in the Bronx community working directly uh, with tenants to to help organize efforts to, to fight the practices and laws that have worked to their disadvantage. And then we'll be joined by uh, Angela Fernandez, who is the Commissioner of Human Rights for the state of New York and previously an attorney in the Bronx who worked on migration issues. What will she be talking about? She'll be zooming out a little bit in terms of the broader context of New York State housing human rights law and the ways that they are seeking to be partners in uh, this struggle to support people, immigrants especially, to stay in their homes. I'm 
I'm here in the home of Alexis Francisco, community organizer with the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition. Thank you so much for joining the show, Alexis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with your personal story. How and why did you come to this city and what did you find when you arrived here? So I came here um, in 1988 when I was just a little over two years old. So I came because my parents brought me here um, from our um, from where we, we lived in Santiago in the Dominican Republic. Um, my parents had to leave because, um, you know, on one hand, it was because they were trying to seek an op- a better financial opportunity, a, a seek a better, a better way to make a living for, for themselves as a couple and for their growing family. They had me, my sister was soon to come, um, and they were struggling to make ends meet in the Dominican Republic. Um, they struggled mightily. Um, and eventually they decided that it made sense to, to take this leap, to leave home, leave their community, leave... Um, for a place where they didn't speak the language, they didn't know anyone. We moved to Washington Heights in the uh, you know late '80s. The area where we lived was was not easy. There was a lot of poverty, a lot of violence. Um, we lived in an apartment building where we often didn't have heat or hot water. We, at, especially at the beginning, had to live with other families in 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 apartment in a cramped apartment to make ends meet. Um, and um, and my parents worked really hard. You know, the one thing that they found when they got here was that this country didn't recognize their degrees as legitimate. So they both actually ended up working in um, in factories upstate um, in Rockland County. So my dad worked in that in a factory during the day and drove a cab at night. Right, all of this was what was necessary to generate enough income for our family to stay afloat. Um, and so, you know, there's one way that we tell these kinds of stories where it's like folks are, you know, searching for, you know, seeking the quote unquote American dream, right? Like trying to get ahead. And so they come here, you know, it's the land of opportunity. But, you know, in truth, you know, my parents had to flee their home country because they couldn't survive, you know, and, and that didn't happen in a vacuum, right? You know, you've got um, the economic landscape in the Dominican Republic was shifting in a particular way in the 80s as it was throughout Latin America, right? Um, you know, this is the height of neoliberal economics in the United States. That's having, you know, that the, the extending its reach into Latin America in particular ways and the way that it manifested in the DR and really locally for my family was we had to leave, right? And, and try to come here because there was just no work um, for my family, so. That was how we ended up here. And, you know, it's been, you know, we, we make home, we make family, we make community. I, you know, that my, my, that same building where we came to ended up being one where, you know, we, we made lots of community and ended up family ended up living in different floors in the building. And it became a very beautiful place for us to live. And, um, but it was not an easy choice and it was not an easy experience of coming here. And, and I know our families, our family is not unique in, in, and having that dynamic of um, having to leave home, not because you want to, but because you have to. So did you find that people had similar or different stories to you in the Bronx? Why are other immigrant communities coming here? Oftentimes folks are not seeking to come here necessarily. They, they end up having to come here. They end up having to choose to settle down here. Um, and you know the reasons for why that is is different depending on where folks are coming from. Um, but oftentimes and on the whole, what you'll find for the most part in the Bronx is folks are displaced due to economics, 
um, due to, you know, it's a sort of economic displacement and forced migration because of econ economic instability, um, the inability to generate enough resources for yourself in wherever you were. And so you end up having to come to New York City as this sort of like um, economic center of the United States. And once you're in New York City, you know, you know, most of us end up in the outer boroughs in some way. And then more recently, you know, as the city has become more and more unaffordable, you know, even even Washington Heights, where I grew up, like it was possible for us to come and settle in Washington Heights in the 80s. You probably cannot do that anymore because that area of Manhattan is now wildly more expensive than it was when we came and, and it is increasingly becoming unaffordable for working class folks um, due to the pressures of gentrification and, um, you know, now more and more folks are being pushed up to the Bronx because the rest of the city is unaffordab unaffordable. Areas of Brooklyn that maybe had been affordable where there were mostly people of color communities, black and brown communities, are now some of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Um, so a lot of folks, you know, not just now, but up to now are finding themselves having to come settle in the Bronx because there's just nowhere else to go in New York. So can you ground us a little bit more in the history of the Bronx and in particular, the time of the Bronx burning in the 1970s and 1980s? How were immigrant communities of the Bronx shaped by that history of displacement and resistance and what did they build? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so hmm. in reality, that history kind of begins a little bit before the sort of what, what is called sort of the burning years in the 70s, right? When you think about the Bronx in some ways, early in its history was sort of a, a more uh, wealthy area of New York City. You know, you think about the Grand Concourse was created for some of the wealthiest people in New York City once to create their, you know, to, to move up. It was modeled after sort of Champs-Élysées Boulevard in Paris, you know, to sort of be this sort of bastion of wealth for New York City. And you begin to have an influx of more um, sort of working class immigrant white communities coming from Europe, folks who are coming from Italy, Ireland, you know, these different places and, and, and settling in, in these areas in the Bronx once that sort of time period of, of this concentration of wealth begins to fade. Um, and then you, you know, you get, you begin to get into sort of like post-depression, um, New Deal era uh, social policies that create access to wealth for white people that are not available for people of color, for black and brown folks. And so you begin to have what is um, historically termed white flight, right? Where you begin to have this sort of in, uh, you know, massive migration of white folks out of the Bronx in out to the suburbs, out to Long Island, up to Westchester, um, areas where they have access to the capital needed to buy homes and sort of pursue this, you know, American dream house and a white picket fence thing that is just not accessible to people of color because we were, you know, barred from accessing those those resources. Um, and so you have all of those dynamics shifting the demographics of the neighborhood. And then in the 70s, you have the city go bankrupt, right? So the city goes bankrupt. Um, and part of what they decide to do in order to, um, to deal with that lack of, of resource for the city is they begin to cut um, municipal services, um, primarily in black and brown working class communities. So you begin to see sanitation services cut, you begin to see firehouses shut down, um, all of these things that, you know, 
that in that moment probably needed to be strong and strengthened and probably have resources poured into them, you begin to see those services cut. Um, and so, you know, um, part of what that results in is um, you begin to have an, uh, an uptick of fires um, in the borough. Um, but it's not just fires happening naturally because there aren't enough firehouses, right? Part of what you have is um, predatory landlords, right? Se seeing an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, seeing that they're not able to uh, make these buildings profitable for themselves just on renting them out to poor and working class people of color, not seeing these people's humanity and dignity, right? Deciding that it would be more beneficial to them to actually burn down the properties and collect insurance money than it would be to try to actually repair them and make them livable for the people that live in them. Um, and so you see, you know, you begin to see fires at a scale that is, you know, hard to really wrap your head around. You know, you, there, there are reports that on some nights there were upwards of a thousand fires in a single night. Um, it literally looks like a war zone. You know, you've got rubble, you've got from the buildings, you've got entire blocks leveled by fires. You've got garbage everywhere because with the lack of sanitation services and then also illegal dumping sites, right? These neighborhoods, our neighborhoods were being used as illegal dumping sites and the city would allow this in order to save money. They would then structure their garbage collection routes to pick up this garbage that would accumulate in our neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, it's under these kinds of conditions that people were fighting and organizing and, um, you know, creating homes and communities out of that rubble, out of like the literal ashes of our communities being burned down. Um, people fought and fought for their buildings, they fought for their communities, they fought for their children's lives. And, and this is the kind, of, the kind of context in which people were living in the 70s and 80s in the Bronx. Northwest Bronx Coalition was one of these groups that emerged in this time period for out of communities that were organizing. So you had um, clergy, um, you had uh, tenants that were literally living in these buildings um, that were being burned or that were suffering from the impact of redlining, um, which um, I don't know that I mentioned earlier was a sort of um, fiscal policy where, where banks would literally mark neighborhoods that they knew to be um, inhabited by people of color, black and brown people, and mark them as um, too risky to invest in, to pour money into. And so literally this would concentrate poverty in our neighborhoods. And so, you know, the burning, the fires, the disinvestment, the, um, the cutting of these services, um, folks were organizing against folks began organizing to transform their community. Tenants were um, literally organizing into tenants associations, neighborhood associations, um, literally bringing people together that lived in the same community to be like, look, I know that I'm not the only person that's experiencing this issue, you know? Um, you know, I know that you're not also, right? Breaking this isolation that people experience when they're suffering, right? Oftentimes suffering in silence, hearing from their neighbors that, oh, actually I'm not the only one. You're, you're experiencing that too. You know, so-and-so's child is having the same problem that my child is having in their school. Um, and then um, recognizing that they might not have the power to change it alone, but that together they had the power to pressure um, the city or whatever, uh, you know, whatever power holder has the thing that they needed to give it to them. Tell us more about how that history and that work continues today. What are the displacement pressures that immigrant communities and poor and working class communities of color in the Bronx are experiencing today? And how are they 
banding together to fight back. Mm -hmm. Well, in many ways, folks are still experiencing the lingering effects of um, the disinvestment that happened in the 70s. So you still have a high concentration of poverty in our communities here in the Bronx. And so, you know, this, this history of this, this need for tenants and community members to um, band together to build the power to get their needs met has never really gone away, right? You know, whether the folks are organizing in their buildings against landlords that are, you know, um, trying to make a quick buck or save a couple pennies by making their lives miserable, right? Or like trying to get New York City to actually invest in the schools that serve our kids. Like folks have had to organize. Um, and they've come up with really amazing strategies over the years, you know, like it was organizing that led to, you know, policies like the Community Reinvestment Act that got money put back into our communities um, to try to offset the impact of redlining. It was, um, you know, um, tenants organizing together um, that have fought for some of the rent laws that protect tenants that we that we benefit from today, and that folks have continued to fight to strengthen. Um, you know, so that 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 history has never really ended, right? But now I think the prior the, the biggest threat that folks are experiencing is gentrification. Um, our neighborhoods, which have historically been disinvested in, right, are now um, in the crosshairs, right, for real estate interests. Folks are looking to our communities as, you know, uh, potential places where buildings can be purchased and flipped and um, and a profit can be made, right? As Manhattan and, and so much of Brooklyn and even parts of Queens have become unaffordable, folks are getting pushed up to the Bronx. And so communities that you never... Um, you know, never thought could gentrify, right? Are now seeing, you know, one bedroom apartments going for two and $3,000, you know? And um, you have this whole conversation about affordable housing, you know, the creation of affordable housing in New York City from um, our current administration that is creating affordable, you know, quote unquote, affordable housing that is not affordable to the people that live in the communities currently. And so, you know, the, the threat right now is whether or not people are going to be able to stay in their apartments next year. You know, they have fought, again, like I said, to build these communities out of the ashes and out of the rubble. And now, you know, it feels like a landlord can come up with some sneaky way to double your rent or, you know, not double, but like, you know, increase what feels like double often is like increases that are unaffordable to people. Um, or you have a upsurge in harassment, tenant harassment, right? These are the ways that landlords try to get around some of those very basic protections that have been put in place for, for tenants, right? So you can't raise a tenant's rent above a certain amount legally, right? Unless they move out. And so what do landlords do? They often make um, tenants' lives miserable in their apartment, you know, so that they end up having to move so that they can then, um, you know, renovate the apartments and charge uh, way more rent to the next person who, you know, as you have this influx of people that have more income, you end up having entire communities shifting, not just demographically, but you see this massive disruption in the culture, the fabric of the community. Again, these networks of support and, um, and connection that keep, that, that make up a community are disrupted. Um, so this is this this threat of gentrification is definitely um, the thing that's looming over the head of every single person in the Bronx right now. And can you talk a little bit more about the different ways that landlords are using to displace tenants, especially immigrant tenants, whether it's more um, like direct 
threats around um, around calling ICE on undocumented folks, or maybe more subtle forms of harassment. What what's the array array of um, tactics that you're seeing landlords use? Yeah, I mean, we have seen uh, through through the tenant organizing that we do at North Response Coalition very direct threats on um, on immigrant folks in buildings where landlords either know or suspect that folks are undocumented. They will, um, you know, threaten folks, um, threaten to report folks to um, immigration authorities. Um, and you know, you think about the kind of terror that folks have to live in. You know, you send your children to school and you don't know that you're going to be there when you get back, especially right now in our political climate where there's this upsurge in um, militarized tactics against against immigrants. It, it, there is a heightened degree of, of terror that folks are living in. Um, and so landlords know that. And so they take advantage, whether or not you make a direct threat or you insinuate um, that that could be a tactic that's used that can um, keep somebody silent and keep somebody from um, engaging in the kind of tenant organizing that has the power to hold that landlord accountable. Um, you know, and and whether or not, you know, regardless of folks' immigration status, you see harassment, the likes of which I mentioned earlier, you see folks, you know, a landlord will withhold repairs in an apartment. Um, so, you know, again, you you know, how, how long can you live trying to like raise your family and work um, when you have like a big hole in your ceiling where there's water dripping or there's mold um, infested into your walls. You know, oftentimes you have landlords, um, you know, for example, in my building, we had um, what is called an MCI, right? Which is a type of rent increase that landlords can pursue based on um, having created what are called major capital improvements. So any kind of major uh uh, renovation or change to the building that impacts multiple tenants or tenants as a whole, landlords can then apply to the city um, to then have uh, rents increased for all tenants in the building. Now, you would think that like if a landlord spent, let's say, a million dollars doing you know renovations to the exterior of the building, they could increase the rent until they recuperate their million dollars. And then it would be, you know, that we might even consider that as something that makes sense reasonably, but that's not how it works. And so that is, you know, when folks are making those kinds of risk calculations, when they're determining whether or not they're going to organize and whether or not they're going to try to fight for better living conditions, you know, whether it's, am I going to be able to pay a thousand dollars more rent per month? Am I going to have to deal with, um, you know, ice coming to my house if I speak up about this? Am I going to have to deal with um, a super that I have to see every day harassing me um, or, you know, getting my, you know, shutting off services to my, am I going to have to deal with my child living in my apartment with mold? You know, like, you know, all of these things are the things that that are, are actually tactics that are used by landlords to discourage tenants um, from organizing and to, um, you know, um, oftentimes get people out of their house, out of their homes. So before you mentioned the universal rent laws that your organization was a part of winning, can you share a little bit more about what was won and with, uh, with their passage and what more needs to be fought for? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're we're in a momentous moment for housing justice uh, organizing in the Bronx. I mean, at Northwest Bronx was a part of a larger coalition that included other um, really powerful organizing groups in the Bronx and across the city, like um, Casa and Met Council for Housing and um, other groups all over um, the state that that fought together for this. Um, for this legislation. And um, part of what we won were, um, you know, I spoke about um, vacancy bonuses, which is um, we, that that was taken away. So now landlords can't um, raise the rents. You know, they, this disincentivizes a little bit the sort of pushing of folks out under the assumption that you can like hugely jack up rents when you get people out of their apartments. Um, something called vacancy decontrol, which is um, which allowed for once you once you're able to raise the rent on a rent um, rent regulated apartment to a certain degree, then it comes out of rent regulation, right? So it can become a market rate apartment. So that was that was changed in this in this with this law. Um, I talked about MCIs earlier, which is something that's close to my heart because it's something that me and um, the tenants in my building have been fighting for uh, for our building. Um, and so part of what was won wasn't a complete abolishment of MCIs yet. Although that is still the fight that we're moving towards, because you know we believe that it is that that we will soon abolish MCIs because of how much that's impacting tenants in the Bronx and across the city. Um, but in the meantime, what we did win was um, a reduction in how much landlords can um, can can get out of tenants for these major capital improvements, and a reduction in how long they can charge it for. Um, so it did sort of reel in, reel back a little bit the sort of free for all that landlords have been in in New York City and the ways in which our housing laws have really benefited landlords for far too long. And you know we're beginning to move towards um, towards more equity in housing in New York City and in New York State. And so there's still much to fight for, right? Um, you know we're still nowhere near. Um, you know the 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 vision of of what housing justice would really look like for people in the Bronx and where our people can can raise their families and live live, live their lives free of threat um, of displacement right um, or an eviction right evictions are a huge issue um, in the Bronx and in my neighborhood in particular one of the neighborhoods that has the highest eviction rates um, and so we're we're really continuing this fight for for housing justice for all of our folks. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your work, Alexis. Thank you. Angela Fernandez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. So uh, let's start with uh, the story of your family, because I, I think it fits with this double displacement theme we're discussing mm -hmm. today. How and when did they come to the United States? Well, uh, my mother is from the Dominican Republic, and uh, my father is from the south of Spain. And they uh, arrived in the United States in the late uh, 60s. My mother actually, I would say, encountered a double displacement. Much of the reason she had to leave the Dominican Republic had to do with the um, economic and political interests that the United States had in the Dominican Republic in a variety of ways, one of them being a U.S. invasion of the country and, and some other uh, related um, issues around that. So my mother went to Spain and it was very unusual. And it was her and about 100 other young Dominican teenagers were um, uh, shipped off to Spain and my mother landed in Granada in the south of Spain. And my father, minding his own business, fell in love with my mother. My mother had the foresight and she said, I'm going to the United States. Um, I think the United States is where the future is. 
And it was very easy back then to just get on a plane and travel and decide to, you know, where you're going to live. It was much easier than today. My father followed her simply because he was in love with her. And they both, you know, despite the fact that my father actually had a college degree, he started working in factories. And uh, my mother also worked in factories. She didn't have a, a college degree. Um, and then I was born. They went to Patterson, New Jersey, probably one of the few Latino um, immigrants um, in, uh, in, in Patterson at that time. So when I think about uh, my parents, both who grew up under brutal dictatorships, uh, both who came to the United States for a multitude of reasons, and could regularize fairly easily, if they were to come today and, have, and then still give birth to me and my four other brothers and sisters, uh, we would have a completely different experience. So... You're currently the Commissioner uh, for Human Rights in New York State, but before, before that, you were director of the Northern Manhattan Coalition on Immigrants' Rights. And having worn both those hats, or currently wearing one hat and mm-hmm. having worn the other hat, can you talk uh, about the kinds of pressures that immigrants are feeling, particularly in the Bronx and the greater New mm-hmm. York, uh, uh, regarding housing? Sure. Um, so... As the commissioner of the New York State Division of Human Rights, our agency enforces um, the oldest anti-discriminatory law in the country. It's um, 75 years old. And we have a very clear understanding that people or corporations or landlords that want to discriminate um, will find different ways to discriminate, will find ways to discriminate that intersect. And as the federal government retreats from its anti-discriminatory responsibilities, at the same time having a federal government infect our national conversation with hateful rhetoric, it is emboldening people to engage in discriminatory practices. What are some examples of that? A perfect example, very much in the in the um, uh, immigration context, is um, uh, landlords uh, saying, telling tenants that they have to provide proof of U.S. citizenship. That's not permitted under New York law. And it's not permitted under, and it, and it's actually, um, uh, as far as we are concerned, under the New York State Human Rights Law and uh, and our division, that is discriminatory practice. Why would landlords care about the citizenship status of their tenants? Um, they are not obligated by any law to ask for, uh, to require some kind of proof of uh, citizenship. Um, landlords are not immigration enforcers, uh, and they should not be. But one could surmise that uh, that it is a way of, of pushing out tenants um, uh, that they may deem undesirable in some way to attract other kinds of tenants, tenants that they may perceive um, or see as, you know, paying, you know, higher rate. Are there other tactics other than asking for proof of citizenship that you've seen in in housing situations? Yes. Uh, One uh, that is uh, very, unfortunately, very common, and we actually um, uh, were able to pass a law this summer to address it. It's called source of income. If If your sole source of income is... Section 8, child support, Social Security, just as examples. And that is what you show as your proof and ability to pay rent. You cannot be denied. And we have found that many people are uh, are denied. Uh, previous to the law uh, passing, the ads would say Section 8 need not apply. 
Well, now that's unlawful. We heard a story of a woman um, from Puerto Rico. She was a, um, a Hurricane Maria refugee, uh, came uh, to New York City, went all over to all the boroughs, um, and she was denied by 10 landlords uh, because of her citizen. Section 8. And she's a U.S. citizen. And um, uh, it wasn't until she received government aid and intervention on this particular case, and then um, she was able to um, rent um, uh, from a landlord. You've been describing situations where uh, people are denied a chance to rent uh, 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 an apartment. Um, are there other tactics that uh, landlords use to actually evict existing tenants if they think they can then get a higher rent from a new tenant? Well, I mean, one common uh, practice, and especially when the tenants are undocumented immigrants, they would be able to do this, uh, the landlord could do this uh, without fear of, um, of, of complaint or retribution is, for example, not fixing things, not, and not providing heat not providing all of the basic amenities that, you know, by law are required to be maintained in an apartment. And so if, um, uh, especially in, in with, with the rhetoric that we're hearing over the last few years, an, an, immigrant, an undocumented immigrant will be less likely to complain or go to court because they're afraid they're going to invite. I mean, any interaction with government can be perceived as an invitation of other elements of government. Um, uh, that could come in and potentially uh, detain and deport. And so um, uh, best to just pick up and move and go somewhere else. Uh, that's one way. Another way that we've seen is um, where uh, either landlords or supers are unlawfully charging um, $30 a month for a refrigerator. They'll say, um, in order for you to have this refrigerator, uh, we're going to charge you uh, $50 a month. Really? And um, and the tenant thinks that this is correct, that that's what they have to do. So that's a way of gouging, pulling money out of um, uh, individuals who already are making you know very little money. We've even uh, heard of cases where um, the landlord doesn't even want to take um, uh, the check, take the rent, for whatever steps they're they're doing that and in the process of of trying to evict uh, evict the person. Are immigrants particularly vulnerable in these situations, or are these tactics used against many people of lesser means in the Bronx? I think the tactics are used in you know in many different scenarios, and uh, uh, the combination of a potential language barrier and uh, the being either out of status or in between status uh, uh, as an immigrant are two vulnerabilities. Actually, I would add a third one, which is we are so privileged to grow up in a country, and I'm saying this in any country, when you have the privilege of growing up in one country, you get to understand the systems of that country. And it's just an automatic, especially if you grow up as a child. So when you come as an adult to a country and systems that we just take for granted because we learn them as children is another barrier. So those are, you know, three vulnerabilities that I would um, uh, describe um, uh, for, for an immigrant. Of course, once you master the system, then you're in an enviable position because now you understand systems from different countries. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the other, that's the positive side of it. You know, and, and, and I think that as a neighborhood in a city is ultimately perceived uh, by entities uh, that are created um, uh, to generate, to generate, that, that essentially work, you know, in, in the financialization of housing, then neighborhoods who start to look like they would be monetizable, that is truly where 
um, neighborhoods um, uh, become vulnerable. So this is really quite a flip, isn't it? Because in the 70s, um, you had redlining and other practices mm -hmm. where financial institutions refused to invest mm -hmm. uh, in these areas. And now these banks mm -hmm. are coming back in and and mm -hmm. working with developers to try to get mm -hmm. folks out so they can make a buck in these areas. It's quite a flip, isn't it? You know, it's interesting because I think you have two things happening. You have one, that living in a city provides an automatic infrastructure that is really a public good and a common, which is mass transportation. You know, and, and when there's a cultural shift where people um, are finding uh, those that wouldn't typically and normally live in a suburb are finding that there's so many amenities to living in a city. You have that combined with the timing of communities from the 60s, 70s, and 80s actually fighting to make their neighborhoods livable, fighting to make it a place where one can live with dignity. When you have the decades of that fight and then people seeing the fruits of it, and now all of a the sudden there's this cultural shift of, oh, wait a minute, the cities are more attractive to live in than suburbs. Um, uh, it becomes a perfect storm. And, uh, and it is something that, that uh, we have a responsibility to really um, uh, you know, ensure that people who were there from the beginning are and not- And help rebuild the and helped And helped rebuild. Yeah. Um, I mean, if people want to leave and move, they should have the freedom to leave and move. Right. But you know, from the from the division of human rights um, perspective, we definitely don't want people to be uh, discriminated against, and and because of that discrimination, decide to you know feel they're not able to stay and leave. But I mean, I think the the idea behind protecting uh, the these laws is so that, and I think rent stabilization is a perfect example. If a person moves out because they want to leave for whatever reason, that rent stabilized apartment now can't be easily adjusted in a way that it that it can go into the free market now. So the idea so the idea is to preserve this for new people coming in. So I think that in that specific instance, the changes um, uh, are not about freezing, but about ensuring that a structure continues to exist even for new people, new people coming in. But I think that there's, you know, that when we look at the Bronx, uh, the, the decades of uh, organizing have, um, uh, we have concrete examples of, uh, of people being able to continue to live in, in the Bronx uh, because of uh, positive organizing um, uh, that has occurred in, in a lot of, in a lot of uh, different neighborhoods. Um, from organizing that, that led to the, to the creation of truly affordable uh, housing to taking existing housing and making it livable. For people. It's really interesting the way you've described the compounding effects of, of income, of non-citizenship uh, status, of language ability. And it seems that it, it's really, it's wrong to try to isolate these individual factors when in fact it's a whole mm -hmm. grouping of factors that make a particular group more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, when we look at the human rights law, when we when when someone files a claim, we are going to they may file a claim under one area that they think they've been discriminated against, but we will investigate. And sometimes we find that they're being discriminated against under multiple uh, protected classes, and that's where the intersectionality comes in. And uh, and you know, when you look at an individual who um, may be an immigrant of um, a country that is primarily of the African diaspora, um, uh, that may have a disability 
due to years of barriers or years of bad a- or poor access to healthcare. You know, you're combining now, those are just three things right there. We think of New York as a welcoming city, a sanctuary city, and yet we're, uh, what you're describing are practices uh, largely of, uh, of private actors that make it a, a less welcoming city mm-hmm. than one might, one might think. The, the, the anti-discriminatory laws were created to respond um, uh, um, to all of the different ways in which people were being denied access, denied access to living in dignity. And unfortunately, and especially now under this particular um, uh, climate um, at the federal level uh, that, that we're experiencing, experiencing, these laws are all the more important. You know, but I think one hopeful thing to note is that there are um, uh, definitely entities that are um, engaging in unlawful practice, but there are many, many, many that actually come to us and say, we understand the law changed. What do we need to do? We want training because we do want to make sure that we are doing the lawful thing. As you uh, look at the current situation of immigrants uh, facing challenges in Mm -hmm. housing uh, in the Bronx, I I take it some of that is due to discrimination on prohibited grounds, Mm -hmm. but also it may may be based on the desire of people to make a buck, to gentrify, to to flip Mm -hmm. houses and to hire uh, paying uh, rents. Can the law get a grip on that? Can the law prohibit that in some way? The law is very specific to discrimination, and the discrimination um, has to happen against um, uh, protected classes um, uh, that continue to um, get expanded every year, which is a good thing because um, uh, there are many different, as we learn, different ways that people are discriminate. We need to then uh, respond to that. So if there isn't discrimination happening in the process of providing less than, for example, not providing heat um, in a building, uh, there are, then we have, to, we have to look at other laws. And those are the other laws that, um, uh, you know, is, are, is the law being broken generally um, when a landlord is not providing heat um, to a building? The second piece of it is the enforcement of that and whether there is a will and, where there, and if there's a budget to enforce that. That's separate then from discrimination. We've talked to um, uh, local housing uh, and immigrant activists uh, in the Bronx. What what um, influence, what impact do you think the political work being done in the borough mm-hmm. has had? Well, we just recently had uh, some sweeping rent guidelines uh, laws passed that you know, essentially overall uh, protects um, the rent stabilization stock uh, that we have. I mean, we don't have a mechanism where when an apartment goes out of rent stabilization status, a whole new batch uh, gets, you know, gets created to replace it. And, you know, there had been a history of abuses uh, around uh, around uh, rent stabilization. And so I think that the strengthening of that was, uh, was something that uh, needed to happen. Tremendous organizing achieved that uh, along with, um, with the political will. So this is, uh, this is, you know, something that if it weren't for the organizers and the people that were directly impacted, uh, organizing around this issue and then uh, working with um, all the different political entities, um, then we wouldn't necess- we wouldn't be here today with those new laws. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Angela, Thank you. for being here. 
You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Alenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com. <laughs>